This is an ABC podcast. Sally Warriner is an adventurer. As a young woman in the 1970s, she headed to London, where she worked as a nurse in busy emergency departments and also spent a bit of time travelling and eating the odd hash cookie. Back in Australia, Sally hitchhiked to the far north, where she stepped out of the life she had envisaged by marrying not a hippie or a lefty uni student like the ones that she'd been dating, but a cattle station manager, a widower with two little boys. Sally spent the next decades working alongside him on remote cattle stations while also raising their kids and other animals and putting her skills as a nurse to much-needed use in the bush. Then at 2am one morning when Sally was 50, she drove away alone from that life, sobbing in the car but ready for new adventures. Her memoir is Not Just the Wife of the General Manager. Hi, Sally. Hi, Sarah. You weren't born on a cattle station, but you did have a bullpen at your place growing up. What was that? We did indeed. There was two sisters, my older sister and my younger sibling was a a boy who was five years younger and he was quite wild and mum was quite busy and we lived in Toowoomba and we had a very big backyard and mum got dad to build a wire fence (laughs) around the bottom of the stairs in the house which we called the bullpen. And my younger brother, Stuart, was there there in corralled until he was about five, I think. I do think you'd get arrested for behaviour like that today. And perhaps I should have been able to use it in uh, my bush life. But uh, she wasn't arrested and um, he never did escape. (laughs) Your dad was quite the local identity in Toowoomba. Tell me a bit about him. Well, Dad was working on the council in Toowoomba in the in the fifties, and thought that perhaps Toowoomba might be a um, needs needs some help with tourism. So he came up with the Carnival of Flowers, which was really quite a big deal. The Carnival of Flowers in Toowoomba, and in fact, we're in the process of getting a copper bust made for him and put in Queens Park. But prior to that, he'd been, I guess you would say, a um, a war hero. He was a um, navigator on Wellington bombers uh, during the war. And he did, I think it was 45 bombing missions out of, he was seconded to the RAF. So he was based in, he was based in England and um, he did 45 missions in the days when 21 missions were the requirement, but they ran out of flyboys and he just kept flying and flying until they eventually got shot down over Italy. So he's got this medal, which is a caterpillar with red glass eye, which means that you have bailed out of a burning (sighs) aircraft. Anyway, he survived. There was 10 of them on the flight. There were only two that did survive. He landed, parachuted out just north of the foot of Italy and had to walk for two or three nights overnight to get to where he knew there was an American base right at the base of the foot of Italy. He actually took a uniform off a dead German soldier or a coat off a a dead soldier. So if he was spied by the enemy, they would think that he was German. But then he failed to take it off when he got to the American base and he appeared walking into the base and the Yanks grabbed their guns and pointed them at Dad and he said, hey, g'day, mate, (laughs) and was saved. Oh, my goodness. You had your own near-death experiences in machines as a teenager. What happened when you went for a secret drive there at Toowoomba? 
Oh, goodness, they, they were, I think I was only about 12 and I was showing off as I was wont to do. And one of my friend's fathers had a very flash Mercedes, which I thought that I could possibly demonstrate how good I was at driving. But it was Toowoomba and it was in the morning and the grass was wet and I was revving it back and forward and back and forward, jamming on the brakes. But I just over-revved and ended up nearly going over the edge of the range, which was a 1,000-metre drop. I got caught on their cement septic tank. (laughs) Thank goodness for the septic tank. And my mother came out and grabbed me by the pigtails and said, when we get home, I want you to get out the riding crop, which was had been done many times before and for which now you would also get arrested. Was nursing something that you really wanted to do, Sally, or was it just more one of the options that were available for girls in the, the 50s and 60s? No, it was totally down to my wonderful mother and I almost thank her daily for forcing me virtually. She dragged me kicking and screaming to the nurse's home in Canberra. It was in the days before university. Uh, We were the last block through before university and so I had to go for an interview with the matron of the old Canberra hospital before it imploded. Because mum said I wasn't doing very good at, and I didn't do very well academically at school. I was I discovered boys. I was um, I really needed uh, I really needed to focus on something. So I uh, got accepted into nursing, and thank goodness that I did do that because I'm today at 72. I'm actually still working, and it, that nursing job has saved my life so many times. Well, the first adventure it let you pursue was going to London and, and working in, um, in hospitals there and travelling around Europe as well. What was Sharehouse life like in London in the early 70s? So there were a few share houses, but the one that I was in for the longest was in Shepherd's Bush. That's when that's where all the Australians were in the early 70s. And I was working at Charing Cross in the um, coronary care ICU. And so I used to ride a, a step through Vespa in my Charing Cross uniform with my frilly cap and um, a red cape billowing out behind me, freezing my feet off. And the share house was full of all sorts of travellers, nearly all Australian, I guess. We had no money. There was never, ever any hot water or there never was enough hot water. There were people all over the lounge room in um, swags and things. I was the queen of making um, vegetable pies because they were cheap and we couldn't afford meat. And we did a lot of drugs. (laughs) A lot of drugs. My friend, who later um, features in one of my uh, unfortunate baby deliveries, she um, didn't do a lot of drugs. She was my nursing friend, but she chose not to. So she was our trip nanny. And uh, she used to accompany us when we were taking acid into um, Hyde Park, marvelling at the colours of the flowers. And I can still envisage looking at my hand and seeing the kaleidoscope. Oh, dear me, those were the days. What would the matron of Canberra (laughs) Hospital have said to you, Miss Sally? in the sky with diamond (laughs) days they were. What car did you and and your then boyfriend acquire in 1972? Well, I had a friend who was a South African medico and he had had three goes at his um, physician's exam and he finally 
finished and was thrilled, could go back to South Africa, and he gifted me his 1952 Ford Anglia which I, it was a bit rusted in the fenders and um, I got some contact paper. Do you remember the con- contact paper that you put in the drawers in the kitchen so it was floral? I plastered over the rusty holes in that, in that Ford Anglia and four of us drove it 16,000 kilometres across to, we ended up in on the uh, Burmese border, which it is in Myanmar border, which it is now, um, without even a flat tyre. Oh, that's the kind of car I want. Yeah, it was fabulous. And where did that mighty, so you, what happened to it at the we end, that mighty car? had to abandon it because we hadn't, I mean, obviously it was the days before mobile phones and we were not into actually much planning. And so we just kept driving wherever, whatever took us that day. And when we got to the Myanmar border, it was closed. So we had to actually abandon the poor little car it's on the border. It's probably still going. It's probably still Someone's going. probably still driving it about <laughs> I on, hope around so. Burma. I hope so. <laughs> well, three months after leaving London in the Fort Anglia and embarking on that great adventure, you landed in Perth and hitchhiked up to Broome where your sister and her family were living. How did you and your boyfriend look as you strode off the highway to surprise her? Well, this was a boyfriend that I'd been going out with for a long time. We'd travelled together for years and uh, he was very much the hippie. Well, I, I was too. So I had I had a, a floral dress and a headband and plaits and Jesus sandals and long beads and he had a sarong, a singlet and his hair, big beard, his hair pulled back in a ponytail and he had an earring which was a little off-centre because I had actually pierced his ear on one of our... Uh, nights in, uh, in, in London and it was a bit off centre, but it didn't matter because it was just a ring earring. And uh, so there we were, we hopped in the truck, a truck he picked, oh, we had backpacks with our entire life in it because we'd left most of the stuff in England for other Australian travellers. And um, we hopped in a, a road train and hitchhiked up and the truck he dropped us at the um, entrance to the Broom races. And I just don't remember thinking that perhaps I should have worn something a little more appropriate. I did not and he did not. Anyway, we get off at the broom races, we walk up the road and leaning on the bar are sort of seven cowboys in um, top boots and grey Stetsons with horsehair bands and variations of blue and white striped shirts and belts with Bull, bull riding award buckles on them and they're all pretty much identical and my sister Susan was standing there with them and she had on the cool mint pearls and the floral dress cinched in at the waist and the sun hat with the frangipanis fresh frangipanis may I add around the hat and the glasses with the gold filigree arms and the man who was to become my husband turned around, saw us coming up the road and said to my sister, oh, my God, look at what the cat dragged in. <laughs> and my sister Susan said, oh, that's not a cat, that's my, that's my sister. <laughs> <laughs> you and this hippie boyfriend parted ways and you stayed on at Kununurra, working at the Kununurra Hospital. And as a young single nurse, you must have been pretty hot property there. Why did this this husband-to-be, why did Ken stand out from all those other cowboys who were hanging around? Because 
he was probably the he was handsome and he was wild and and he had the best plane. <laughs> They all had planes. They all used to fly in and out of the stations, and um, and I st- did start dating a few of them when my when my hippie boyfriend had left and uh, gone back to Canberra, and I did date a couple of them for a while. Um, one of them um, ha- had a pub, and he used to bring in some booze when he came into um, Kununurra, and the other one had a veggie patch, and he would bring in some very nice cauliflower. And I things. don't think he stood a chance against the booze and the, the <laughs> oh, good no, plane. Ken had the Bonanza and he brought in beef. So, um, and he was he was the wildest man, and he was the one that I liked. He had two little sons, though, as well. He was a widower. What what was your feeling about becoming a stepmom? Ken's wife had very sadly uh, died of cancer when she was only thirty, and left him with two little boys um, who were only three and four at the time. And he was very busy. He was setting up the property. He was grief-stricken about his young wife's death, obviously. And so these little boys were not used to women and they were very wild. They had been looked after largely by the Aboriginal women and they did have a governess on and off. But they were, I still remember when I first met them, they had sort of wiry white hair and skin off the end of their nose, you know, the peeling nose and very, very skinny legs with knobbly knees. They were fair skinned. They didn't have any shoes on most of the time. They just sort of looked like little raggedy urchins and they um, certainly didn't like it when I tried to kiss them on the cheek. They wiped my kisses off and I'll still remember that thinking, back off Sal, this is going to take a while. Well, after a, a bit of a whirlwind romance, you agreed to to marry him. Who took on all the wedding organising? My sister lived in Kununurra at the time. Her, she was mayor of Kununurra, and um, her husband was the a, a vet. In fact, quite a famous flying vet. And so she was a much more organised person than I was. And so she was the one that basically organised the wedding. So, you know, the cake had to come up from Perth and the flowers had to come from here and she organised a dress to be made. I was really incompetent, in fact, and um, very happy to hand over all the um, planning to her. So all the organisation was done by her. I decided who I wanted to come. Quite a few people came over from the eastern states. It was only going to be small in the Mangrove Hotel in Broome, it was, not Kununurra, um, where they were doing a locum at the time. So, yes, I didn't have to do any of the wedding organising. What happened the day before the wedding? I changed my mind. I decided that the hippie boyfriend of mine that we had been such great mates and we'd had such wonderful experiences over such a lot of time that I um, had had not been kind or considerate enough when breaking it off with him and staying with Ken. So I just felt that I couldn't in good heart go ahead um, with this marriage without making peace with him. I had no intention of going back to him but I just needed to make probably peace with myself more than anything else. So I I actually walked out the day before the wedding and it was a terrible thing to do and I, and, and I regret it now, um, of course, and I regretted it then, but it probably was the right thing to do at the time. And I am still great mates with Force, the ex-hippie who became a diplomat. So you left <clears throat> the day before this big, 
bush wedding and and flew back to Canberra. I can't imagine Ken was too happy about no. that. How did you restart things with him? Well, I moved back into the nurse's home and started uh, doing my um, midwifery course. And I just wrote to him every couple of weeks with news about what the nursing course was like and how are things going on the station. And I, I religiously wrote to him once a fortnight and he never returned a letter, did no phone calls, no nothing. And then he, he started writing very short, concise letters, but he started talking about his wonderful new governess. The boys had got this fabulous governess and she made him the right corn meat sandwiches for his and cut off the crusts and um, and she could garden and she could, there wasn't anything that she couldn't do. And I'm thinking, hmm, she's going to add another role to this very, this very competent girl. I'm I'm going to have to make up my mind here. So I thought, hmm, I think uh, I I decided then that I really ought to go back. So it was nine months down the track. So I, I asked him, would he take me back? And he said, yes, he would, but I could come back, but we would get married that weekend and go straight back out to the station. And that's what you did. That's what I did. And you went out to the station where he was living at the time, Mount House Station. And and at that stage, he was doing a lot of mustering by plane. What was that like when you'd go along with him out at that first station in the Kimberley? Well, that was one of the most exciting experiences. And I did, I did a lot of um, flying in light aircraft. But in those really early days when we were on Mount House, it's the Mesa country. So it's big red cliffs and towering ghost gums and rivers with pandanus lining the rivers and very, very wild cattle because the cattle um, herd hadn't been upgraded and so a lot of them were bush cattle and very hard to move along. And Ken was flying, he was an expert pilot and flying a 150, which is seriously a little, it looks like a dishwasher held together with a rubber band and a prayer and had absolutely no guts whatsoever. So we when you when you when he'd sort of dive down into a riverbank to move a bull and then pulled back on the plane and would try and you would inadvertently draw in your breath to try and get some lift out of that plane to get it up past the Mesa. Anyway, he did 10,000 hours of mustering in that little plane and that's a lot of hours for a a full-time pilot and um, obviously managed to pull it back in time. You entered into life on the station, including entering the Rodeo. Did you have any success? Um, No, I was not too good at that. I I tried everything. I tried barrel racing and I tried um, flag racing and and I tried camp draft and they were all very kind. But I was up against women who were sort of built like whips and who had been on horses since they were three and they were just so far ahead of me. So, um, but I vindicated myself by winning the Rodeo Queen at the Halls Creek Races in, I don't know, 1974 five or six or something. And so I've got the sash because I was the rodeo queen, even though I hadn't ridden in the rodeo, (laughs) 
you know, it was like the flower girl, or, you know, the queen of something or other. And it was just the funniest photo. I've actually still got it. And it's me. I'm probably a head taller than the rodeo riders and, and 20 kilos heavier. Sally, if I had a sash that said rodeo queen, I would wear it all the time. I would shower in it. I'm very impressed by that. Ken was given a, a promotion and you headed off to Brunette Down uh, Downs on the Barclay Tableland and arrived in a record wet season. What birds arrived with you at, at Brunette Downs? We arrived in 1976. There'd been 40 inches of rain in, in 1974, as I recall, and then 60 inches in 1976. So Brunette, which was huge, I think 3 million acres, Two-thirds of it was underwater and it were the biggest floods that they'd had in, you know, whatever whatever time it was. And just inexplicably, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pelicans arrived. So we're about 150 kilometres inland from, say, Borolula on the Gulf. They don't come inland, pelicans don't, to, when there's no... Um, guaranteed water. So I don't know. How did they know that there was this enormous inundation and inside lake in Lake Sylvester? How did the pelicans know that? And and they knew that. They came, they landed, they laid their eggs. So there was just hundreds of thousands of nests on these little islands, um, which we got in the tinny and went out and started wandering around the little islands, picking up these tiny little, that were not frightened, um, pelican chicks that felt like rice bubbles. It was extraordinary. Featherless, pink, rice bubbles. And, of course, you had to be very careful if the mother came back because she would come flying at you with her mouth open and try and um, attack you. But it was a global phenomenon. We had people who were coming into Brunette Downs from all around the world studying it because it, it, it was something that was, I know we're getting a lot of the word lately, but unprecedented. Who was Pommy Bob on that station? Well, Pommy Bob was the cook on uh, Brunette Downs before I arrived and I already knew about the legend of Pommy Bob. So I knew that there are there are things that the manager's wife can do and there are things that she can't do. And interfering with a cook like Pommy Bob was the latter. (laughs) He used to make 30 sometimes loaves of fresh bread every day, plus he would feed perhaps 40 people in the kitchen, three meals a day and two smokos, and he'd done it for about 15 years. It was an impossible job that he did, and he was an English cook, obviously, Pommy Bob, but he, on on special occasions, he would wear one of those bouncy um, cook's hats, you know, with the the bauble on on the top, and he'd have sandals with white socks pulled up and shorts, white shirt and white shorts, always pristine, and he would do an impossible job. And there would be people who would try and help him and he would not allow them. Fred Hollows came up to do an eye check on the Aboriginal community that was living there and working at Brunette Downs. What did he say to you, Sally, when you dropped him back at the plane after that visit? So I was working as the nurse on uh, Brunette Downs, as I was on all the properties that we went to, and um, Fred was on a a trachoma check around the uh, top end. And trachoma is a disease of poor hygiene. 
and is infinitely treatable if people are living in decent living conditions and they're, they're treated with the right medication, antibiotics. Um, but it was rife and it had been rife around the Territory for all the wrong reasons. So he, he came and did a survey and uh, he hopped off the plane and I picked him up and took and he had several nurses with him and we went round the camps and we had a look at everybody's eyes. The disease used to be called Sandy Blight because it caused the trachoma, caused eyelashes to grow in and scratch the eyelid and that's why that disease was called Sandy Sandy Blight. Anyway, he um, asked, I asked him, did he want to have a cup of tea before he left? I took him into the homestead. He saw a beautiful homestead at uh, Burnett Downs and the way that we lived and um, I had taken him through the clinic and he said to me, He's a very gruff-looking man with, with gruff eyebrows and he's small and, and nuggety and a very serious man, but you could just tell with a really, really gentle heart. And he said to me, how can you live like this, the way you're living, working for one of the richest pastoral properties in the country, and these Aboriginal people are living in such appalling living conditions? I don't know how you live with yourself. Oh, goodness, I just felt like I wanted to... It wasn't rude. He he didn't. He, he he meant it, and he was right. He was right. Podcast. Broadcast. This is conversations with Sarah Konoski. Business did you uh, did you and your husband embark on in 1980? What gamble did the two of you take along with some friends? So we had been working for Brunette Downs. Um, Ken was the general ma- manager of Brunette Downs for five years, and it was initially owned by King Ranch, which was who, who we were working for when we were working in um, on on Mount House. Then it was taken over by Australian Agricultural Company in uh, after about three years. The um, CEO of King Ranch was also a personal friend of ours and uh, we also had another friend who was a pastoralist from Alice Springs, Tony Chisholm. PLB Peter Bailey was the King Ranch CEO and three of the, them got together and thought, if there's ever a chance for us to buy anything, why don't we throw our hats in the ring and try and buy something of our own? So in 1981, Roy Edwards had Newcastle Water Station up for sale. So we went ahead and threw our hats in the ring which was an enormous risk because uh, we had a really good job. We, we were working for very good pastoral companies, uh, but this was a chance to have some skin in the game. So we took this huge risk. Where is Newcastle Waters? Barclay Tableland. So if I was On heading On Stewart out- Highway, halfway between uh, Catherine and Tennant Creek. So yeah. that's that's what you you took on first of all um, independently, and the other big event at this point in your life, I guess, Sally, is you gave birth to your first baby, Jesse, your first of three sons. What was his cot made from? Oh, it was a meat safe cot. In fact, they all used the same meat safe 
safe cot, which was in fact an old meat safe before refrigeration. And so it was basically a, a wire, a fly wire, a, a um, I don't even, like a box, like a cradle-sized box that was covered all around, including the top, with um, fly wire so bugs couldn't get in it and on on legs so that you could sort of open the door to this uh, meat safe cot and put the toddler in. Also, it meant that they couldn't throw their toys out of the cot, which was a great advantage. And it's, as I think I think I might have said, it's a shame that there isn't an opportunity later in life to um, lock up certain people <laughs> like that so they can't throw their um, toys out of the cot. They can't throw toys out and it kept <laughs> bugs out and I guess snakes. Snakes. It was mainly for snakes. As you and, and Ken were settling into Newcastle waters, why did you both visit Kerry Packer in his hotel room in, in Sydney? Well, Ken had been a friend of Kerry's socially for very many years. He was actually related to Peter Bailey, who'd been our long-term friend. His wife, Edwina, was Kerry's first cousin. So they had known each other and Kerry had visited in the uh, top end several times. And he had had his a minor heart attack and he was in hospital in St Vincent's and we went down to visit him when he was in hospital because he decided that he'd like to do a little safari around the top end. And so that's what we went to discuss. And what was that hospital room like? It was not like a hospital room is normally. It was about the size, I think it was, it must have been an executive hospital room and it had Kerry's bed in the middle of it and it had about three different phones. It had four secretaries. Um, <laughs> there was a, an array of um, food, drinks, uh, whatever you like. It was just like a hotel room, I think, really. So he he wanted this adventure up at the top end that you took on organising. What kind of entrepreneur and, and kit did he arrive with when the time came? Well, that first one, a uh, caribou cargo plane that, that sort of had enough ammunition and supplies in it to um, live, in, live on a, a deserted island for three years and uh, two backup helicopters, <laughs> Iroquois helicopters, um, plus Kerry's mates, plus his nurse who had a medical kit and so there was quite a few of them. Quite, that, quite, a, quite uh, an arrival, quite I an imagine. Arrival on this new cattle station that basically had one small two-storey fibro house and an old Pise stone house with an outside dunny and a 12-volt um, uh, electrical system. I don't know what he was expecting, but it wasn't that. <laughs> so where did he sleep? Well, we had Vicky was one of our foster children was away at school, so I clear I cleared out Vicky's room um, as much as best I could. It was a very small. The Pise house was tiny, and it had great big thick walls. Um, to, you know, it was an old house made of Pise is uh, ant bed and and cement, I guess, or sometimes not, but very thick stone walls to keep it cold in uh, cooler in summer and warmer in winter, and with hardly any windows for exactly the same reason. So I put Kerry in there in uh, Vicky's narrow single bed <laughs> and uh, it was November. It would have been, I don't know, 40 degrees maybe and not a ceiling fan, no air conditioning. And as I said, the dunny was outside and I didn't hear him in the night, but obviously he must, we got an invasion of bugs, you know, because it was wet season and the stink beetles arrived and just 
like like in a black clouds of them arrived. So I didn't even hear him, but he got up in the night, he dragged the mattress out underneath the poinciana tree, which was between the stone house and the office, uh, put a sheet over his head <laughs> so that the bugs wouldn't fall out of the poinciana tree and was still asleep out there when all the jackaroos <laughs> were going to work in the morning going, who on earth is that sleeping out there underneath that poinciana tree? <laughs> Well, something must have appealed to him because after this trip of camping and and fishing and sleeping out underneath the tree, he made an offer to buy Newcastle Waters. How did that sale change your day-to-day life on the station? Well, we bought it in in 1981 uh, for $6 million, which at that time was an extortionate amount of money. And and we we had borrowed our, our bit of it. We didn't have any money. But the GM obviously had the expertise. The other two were involved in business elsewhere. Tony had his own farm, Napperby, outside Alice Springs. Uh, so we were always going to be the um, operational um, team. And uh, But in 1983, interest rates went from uh, to 17.5% in September of 1983. It really looked bad for us. We possibly may not have been able to um, see our way through. So that happened to coincide with the year that Kerry came up um, for his safari, which he had, you know, we, we, we flew all around the top end. He absolutely adored it. And he, whether he actually bought it to bail out his cousin or that he liked us or whatever, or that he loved the top end, it doesn't matter. We decided to um, sell it to him. And then, I mean, our lives changed because we had, uh, we were riding on his golden checkbook. Well, he financed this very luxurious homestead to to be built there at Newcastle Water so that he'd have a better place to stay when when he'd visit. What did you later discover that his bedroom was used for when Kerry Packer wasn't there? Well, I really didn't discover that until, well, until recently. It's amazing what people will tell you when it's too late for there to be any um, ramifications from it. But I found out from all of my sons and half of the um, staff, half of the nannies, the jackaroos or everything, it used to be the bonk room. And that they would sneak over at night, and um, I really had no idea. Or perhaps I would have locked it. Um, but it was it, it it actually there was a lot of activity going on in Packer's room over those years, of which I was totally unaware. Well, I think it, it it's good bush sense to put to you some nice, luxurious, private bedroom and on this property. I'm I think it's smart. How did you know when it was Kerry Packer ringing? The homestead, Sally? We had a hotline. We had a special line with a special ring. We had four different lines. It was a big business and uh, the phones were ringing all the time. And I was never allowed to have an answering service until about, I don't know, five years before I left, I think. And I had to man the phones when after hours all the time because the GM believed we should be a 24-hour business. Um, so when, when KP rang, it was a special noise and it was answer come hell or high water. So, uh, and everybody would jump to attention including myself. Tell me what happened at the Daily Waters Rodeo with your your eldest stepson, David, when he was just 21. So he was 21 and Yap was uh, two years, 18 months younger. 
and we were Ken was away. I was pregnant, about six months pregnant, as I recall. It was very hot. It was November at the Daily Waters Rodeo, and uh, the boys. I had asked them not to ride the horses because buck jumpers are really, really dangerous. Anyway, they took no notice, and all of a sudden, I've turned round, and there's David coming out of the chute on a buck jumper, and so I'm on the top rail, sitting there with fingers crossed and it was like slow motion. He got thrown and as he spun to the ground, the horse kicked out his back leg and kicked him in the side of the head and I can still see it and and his head bounced to one side and he just went thud on the ground with no movement. So I quickly jumped off as quickly as you can when you're six months pregnant and, and ran to the, to the middle of the uh, rodeo ground and he had bright blood um, coming from his ear and he was unconscious. There is always an ambulance and there's always a competent ambo there and there is some equipment. There's, a, there's oxygen and there's suction and there's good radio contact. So um, the ambo was out there in no time and I got the sucker out and, and um, put him, you know, did, did the emergency um, procedures for an uh, unconscious patient. And then there was a, a um, Ian Tuxworth was our local member at the time and he was there in a, in a 210, a Cessna 210. 10, which I knew you could pull out the back seats in a 210 and make room to put a stretcher in. So I quickly asked somebody to go and ask Ian if we could use the plane to get David into Catherine. He obviously needed emergency attention. And then it was a big quandary for me because if you fly someone who's having a cerebral hemorrhage high, then it can cause the bleeding to restart. But then if you don't get them to hospital and the bleeding finishes and they can't have the, um, the, the, the clot removed, burr holes, they can die anyway. It was the most terrible decision for me to have to make, totally unqualified to make such an enormous decision, but unable to get any um, radio contact to get anyone else to make the decision for me. So I made the decision that I would take him by plane because it was better to get him there in three hours. So we took him out. He, he was deeply unconscious and still bleeding. So we took him out to the plane and I hopped in the back of the plane and they loaded David in on the stretcher with, my, with his head in my hands so I could hold his head. So when the plane bumped, I would, with me holding his head, the head wouldn't be jarred. Um, so of course it was 40 degrees and we had to fly low. We had to fly under a thousand, a thousand feet all the way. They had radioed ahead to Catherine knowing that there was a low flying aircraft coming in. Um, but of course the, um, the jolting of the plane in at low altitude in, on a hot afternoon is, is, is thunderous. Anyway, he he was there. I was holding his head. The pilot was flying, flying, flying. I was I was looking at the clock. I was watching David's conscious level. When the Ambo, who had hopped in the plane as well with the suction and the ox oxygen, I looked across at the Ambo, and he'd gone completely green, sweating, and all of a sudden he vomited all over me a whole bucket of pie and peas, which he'd obviously had for lunch, and passed out also. Oh, so Sally. I've got two unconscious men in the back of a 210 
low flying, this jolting aircraft. The pilot in the front looked about 13 and he was sweating. And I'm just thinking, oh, this can't be possibly happening. Anyway, um, just before I could hear the pilot calling into land, the ambo came good. I stuck the sucker in his mouth, cleared his mouth, put him on his side. He woke up fairly quickly, very sheepishly. I'm very sorry. He said, that's okay. It's not the most important thing that's happening today. (laughs) And um, they were calling to come into land and I just did an eyelash check on David because when someone's unconscious, often the first sign of any conscious level is if you just tip there and they'll quiver if you if you just run your finger over the eyelash. And I ran my fingers over his eyelash and and it flickered. Oh and I started God. crying. Understandably. <laughs> of course, of course. But it meant that his um, conscious level was not getting any worse. It was on the improve and I checked his pupils and his pupils were equal and reacting and slowly, slowly, slowly his conscious level picked up. Um, He still had a a significant cerebral bleed and ended up with a severed um, olfactory nerve so he's deaf in one ear but he's alive. Sounds like you made the right decision under under high pressure. The kids started school locally at Newcastle Waters, just down the driveway at the one teacher school. But like many bush kids, the time came for them to be sent off to boarding school. Would you travel with them to to boarding school when they were little? Mostly when they were, they went off when they were 10. So mostly I couldn't because there was, there was, obviously I, I booked them in the first time they went to school, but when they went back and forth for school holidays, they really had to travel by themselves. And what did that involve? Well, it involved me driving them out at two o'clock in the morning to the Stewart Highway. We have a big box on the highway, great big tin box, which is big enough to take the engine of a, a motor engine in it on um, steel legs um, with a big lock on it that the Greyhound bus delivers stuff, the mailbag and and often parts, which is why it has to be so big. So it was a big enough thing that you could actually climb up the top of it and sit on the top of the mailbox and look around at the night. And, of course, it's Stuart Highway at 2 o'clock in the morning. There's nobody, there's no traffic. At, you know, mostly no one would go past, except occasionally there'd be a truck. And I learned a truck or a bus, if you're looking at it a long, long way away, it, it, there's only one light coming at you. Only, But as soon as the light splits into two lights, you know that it's within about five kilometres and it's time to get off the top and get in the bus. So we would be lying on the top and we would never know when the bus was coming because there were no phones. And if it had had a flat tyre or if someone hadn't turned up or, you know, it could sometimes be delayed two or three hours. And maybe the little boys would fall asleep or we'd do the star watching and we'd sit out there and we'd just chat. Um, And then the bus would come and they would have to hop down and they were young, you know, only 10 years old, and, and they would hop down from the steel thing and hop on the bus and wave goodbye and I'd sit there and cry for hours. When they were back on school holidays, you'd sometimes go out mustering with them at a stock camp on on Humbert River Station. What are your memories of your time there? Um, Oh, 
everything. Uh, the Humbert River was so beautiful. In comparison with Newcastle Waters, which was good cattle country, Mitchell grass, um, Flinders grass, um, plainland country with turpentine scrub, it wasn't nearly as beautiful as Humbert River. So Humbert River was across the Murrinjai and then on the edge of VRD. So it was... Back to Mount House days, it was probably as beautiful as Mount House with the same sort of ghost gums and the deep rivers and the um, freshwater crocodiles and um, the 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 colours, the sunset colours and the and basically the ghost gums in particular and the pandanus and. Um, Around every corner, there was just something else beautiful. Lots of ruse. There were crucifix donkeys. There was um, lots of snakes, lots of frogs, all sorts of animals. Anyway, I used to like to take the boys mustering there in their holidays every year because if I was at Newcastle Waters, I didn't get any break with them. There was always someone wanting me or there was a patient or, you know, something. I needed to be on call. But when I went to Humbert River, I could actually enjoy the kids. So we, we'd often be feeding joeys. So we'd have a bag of joeys and with their um, uh, teats and um, the little boys' saddles and um, the lead rope for the ponies. And then the bigger boys would be on bigger ponies and we'd go to to Humbert River to join their big brother's stock camps and they loved going out. My little boys loved going out with their big brothers who looked after them really very well because some of those horses out there were really wild but they always chose the quietest one for me and for them. It sounds like an incredible life really and an incredible life for your kids but in 2000 you drove away from, from all of that for good. Tell me about that morning. Well, I had felt, I guess, un- unappreciated. I had felt that that the, all the work that I'd done for all the years was basically underappreciated and it had been brought to my mind because in 1996 um, a journalist came and he wrote a coffee table, in order to write a coffee table book about the 10 most important cattle stations or cattle station managers possibly in Australia. And so the journalist, I actually knew this, uh, knew this guy, he came to the house, he spent four days there, he trailed around after Ken interviewed him. Um, I cooked, cleaned, ran the kids, people coming and going from the house, patients in and out of the kitchen. It was the hub. It was the it was the heart of the whole property, uh, which appeared to go completely unnoticed because the journalist then didn't ask to interview me at all and wrote sort of four glowing fool's cap pages about a wonderful, what a wonderful um, cattle, cattleman Ken was and I didn't get a mention. And I just thought, really? Nah. And when you pointed that out to Ken, what did he think about your feelings? He was very surprised. I had right. Um, he gave it to me to have a look at before it was actually published. And when <laughs> I returned, I walked into his office, I put it down on his desk and I said, if that gets published, I'm going to sue for defamation. And he looked very surprised. Um, it did get published and I didn't sue for defamation, but I walked four years later. What was going through your mind on that drive at 2am in the morning away from Newcastle Waters on that, that highway? What, what kind of feelings were in you? I, I, I can't remember. I can't, I think during 
the the worst traumas of anybody's lives, the recollection is poor and that's a self-defence mechanism. I can remember being totally grief-stricken walking away from that property and from the life that I'd led, but my boys were already in Brisbane um, being, uh, they were already at boarding school. They were grown and um, and I was a nurse and I had a job and I knew that um, I would be able to support myself and that I would be, at, my life would be, I would be able to manage my own life. But I didn't really have a plan except at the back of my mind I always had that I wanted to go and do some volunteer relief work for Messe um, Sans Frontières in uh, Africa. And that's what I eventually did. <laughs> just that little thing. I'll yeah. just. So how did that happen? Where did you go? I went to. Um, uh, I went. I spent six months in a refugee camp in uh, in Sierra Leone in the bush in Sierra Leone with uh, sixteen thousand uh, Liberian refugees who were escaping Charles Taylor. And uh, then the following year, I went to um, the Sudan. Just sort of just below where um, all that insurgency was going on with, you know, the terrorist mob anyway. So I went and I did another six months in the Sudan and then I went to Bhutan and lived for a year. I basically spent a lot of years doing volunteer work in develop in the developing world to regain my self-confidence and my strength. A former Jillaroo who'd worked with you at, at Newcastle Waters came and, and visited you many years later after you'd ended the marriage. And what letter did she show you? So her name was Fliss and she was a Jillaroo for us in, in um, 1989, I think. And um, she tracked me down when I, uh, in, 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 at, uh, in Byron, she tracked me down. She knocked on the door and she had a reference that I had written for her when she left. And it was in the days of To Whom It May Concern. It was typed, but it was typed on the old letterhead with the wine glass, the, uh, the embossed green wine glass brand on it. It said, To Whom It May Concern. Fliss Rose was a wonderful Jillaroo and she did this and that and she'd, I'd highly recommend her. It was a stock standard reference that I used to write for people who uh, you wanted to recommend for a, a further job. And and uh, she handed it to me and she said, read this. And I read it and she said, have a look who signed it. And I, and, and I looked at it and it said, and it was signed, Sally Warriner, wife of the general manager. And she put it down on the desk and she said, what the F were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, what the F was I thinking? Bless that Jillaroo. How would you sign it now, Sally? How oh. should you have signed it back then? Well, I can now sign it author. Well, that's certainly true. <laughs> Sally Warren, author, not just the wife of the general manager. Author, nurse, emergency evacuation, <laughs> project manager, nanny, educator. It feels like there's a, there's a big list that, that goes after your name should you choose to identify all those different parts of yourself. Thank you. Sally, it has been an absolute wild ride to hear some of your wild rides today. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you very much for having me. And Sally Warren's book is called Not Just the Wife of the General Manager. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.